As promised, here's the second episode from my visit earlier this year to RAF Coningsby and the Typhoon display team. I wanted to have a look around inside the cockpit of the Typhoon and Flying Officer Gregor Ogston was kind enough to spend uh, half an hour or so explaining what all of the knobs, buttons and dials do. Gregor also explained uh, what the ejection sequence is, which uh, I found fascinating to listen to. Following the look around inside the aircraft, Liam Whelan, the display engineer manager, and Gregor took me around the uh, outside of the aircraft. If you're really interested in fast jets, and the Typhoon in particular, then this is the episode for you. Uh, excuse the noise from the ground power source, uh, which is required to be able to fire up the onboard computers without the air engines running. A uh, bit of a noise in the background. Um, to help with understanding what's what in the cockpit, have a look at the uh, photo of the cockpit layout on the Flying Podcast website. I'm sure you'll find it very helpful in understanding uh, what uh, Gregory's talking about. So, with your cockpit photo to hand, here's Gregor at the controls of the Typhoon. So this is an 11 Squadron Typhoon? It is, yeah, 11 Squadron Typhoon. So, uh, the, you've got three Squadron over there. Uh, you've got 17 over there, I think 11, sorry, over there as well. So, we share aircraft around um, throughout the fleet. At the moment, there's quite a lot of two-seat aircraft at Coningsby because all the single-seat jets are deployed in... Uh, in Italy. So effectively, because there's so much computing power in the jet, to run it on its internal battery, that's sort of a backup emergency system, yep. should everything fail airborne. So on the ground, to, to set it all up, we either connect to a ground power source out on the line, or what we've done here is we have uh, built-in ground power sources around the hangar. Um, we've just connected it up and then it just enables all the systems to be fired up for engineers to work on it or for uh, air crew that itself can come down, practice checks, sit in the cockpit, move menus and things around. So it's all glass screen? Yeah, all uh, pretty much all glass. Got. In fact, even the uh, standby instruments in this are computer-driven uh, glass instruments, so you don't even have sort of the... Um, old school sort of attitude Steam indicator gauges, or anything, yeah. yeah, none of that anymore. The uh, um, certainly, I don't think there are any other uh, fast jets now, obviously, with the Harrier going, but the Tornado has an old uh, style warning panel. The Typhoon has a, a computer driven warning panel as well, so literally the whole cockpit is, uh, is glass, as you would say. Um, do you want me to take you quickly round and yes, just please, sort of yep. say what, what's what? So, um, Anything, it's fairly similar, uh, similar layout for any really fast jet cockpit, but um, the consoles on the left and the right have quite a lot of switches, but generally they're sort of turned on before flight, yep. and then you, you leave them in their sort of on position and then turn them off when you land again. Okay. You may have to dip into some of these with certain emergencies requiring you to turn off certain systems or turn other systems back on. But uh, most of the, the whole cockpit is designed so that the pilot can effectively be hands-on throttle and stick potash the whole time with his looking through the head-up display and occasionally glancing to the three, uh, they're called MHDDs, but effectively yeah. the three tally screens here. And the advantage of that is you, you're obviously looking at, looking for other aircraft, you know, uh, hills, things you might fly into effectively. Yep. Um, but also there are tactical implications for it as well and the advantage of not having to be heads in doing things. Uh, so that's done it. So back left, if we go from there, 
So uh, switches down here, anything co covered in black and yellow is normally an emergency switch or uh, you notice these are all covered so these are switches you don't ever really be using in emergency. Um, moving forward there's uh, sort of backup radio switches again so the, the radio is normally controlled on the throttle but should that fail there's a backup switch for it here. Um, so uh, mid switches which is our data link things like that so as I said these are all kind of backup switches you never really get involved with coming forward to more sort of business end of it there's two throttles on the left hand side uh, one for each engine obviously and on those you'll see there's a number of different uh, shaped and sort of sized uh, buttons yep. they all perform a variety of functions and those functions can change depending what mode the jet's in if, so if it's an air-to-air -air mode or an air-to-surface mode depending what sort of mission you're carrying out and they also move in several directions so for this that switch here for example which is operated by your uh, left thumb that's forward is the uh, radio back is radio 2 so two radios on the jet if you push it down you engage digital voice input DVI it's called yep. which is effectively when you push that down the jet then listens and I can tell it to do things and it w there are set uh, number of words I think it's about 150 words at the moment and I can for example change a radio frequency or change one what's on one of these screens by using that input there so I can command the jet to do things yes. without having to push any buttons Amazing. so that so that one switch there has four different functions um, and that's repeated throughout uh, on the on both throttles and on the on the control column itself you've okay got, you've got a number of switches under your fingers which you use for a variety of functions the power settings obviously uh, HP shut so engines off on the ground no high pressure fuel going to the engine you've got idle uh, which it, uh, we run uh, normally on the ground because the jet's so powerful you can normally taxi at idle uh, max dry so before we've engaged reheat uh, which is the normal takeoff uh, setting that we use here because reheat's extremely noisy and we're conscious of our noise footprint in the local area min reheat and then max reheat which both uh, both burners at that point. You don't need to use reheat very often. The um, sir, because I I've yet to fly this at the moment, so I, I can't comment on how much they use it. Certainly, when they're manoeuvring at higher levels, then it will be used as required yep. for whatever training sortie they are doing. Um, if for a safety reason you need to use it at lower levels, then yes. But because of the the noise, the, the huge noise it creates, yep. we t we try not use it at lower altitudes just because it. it it's very disruptive to. It seems to, to perform very well without reading. Well, that's it? it exactly. I mean, all the pilots who speak to the max dry is normally compared to reheat mm -hmm. in other other jets. So, yep. and that's the big thing about the Typhoon is its power. Every, everyone raves about how powerful this jet is. <coughs> and uh, the other thing is obviously the carefree ending, which we'll go on to as I kind of work my way around. Um, uh, so coming up here, undercarriage. So the three greens that everyone's uh, normally familiar with, but that's also displayed in the head-up display now. So it says 3D, in the, so it goes DDD. So okay. you don't actually, uh, although we do it as a check, you've got the, the confirmation up there that your gear is down. So this is down by your left knee now? Yeah, down by my left knee. Um, here we've also got an emergency gear lowering as well. Should there be a problem with the main system, we've got a backup system to lower the undercarriage. And, and here we've also got emergency and selective jettison so should we have a problem or a hung weapon um, that uh, gives us a problem for whatever reason we're not happy we can we can jettison the uh, 
the ordnance if we need to. Uh, moving up past my, or just uh, sort of coming up from my knee then. Here, this is the drogue chute. So uh, the drogue chute is used um, in emergencies, so aborts, things mm -hmm. like that, where we need to stop the jack quickly. Um, it can also be used if you're landing on a short runway, particularly if there's a strong crosswind and it's wet and you're, the braking action might not be as good. Yep. We can, uh, we can deploy the chute at the back of the jet. Uh, coming around on the, it's called the left-hand glare shield. So uh, up here, it's our data entry panel. So we have two ways where really we interface with the aircraft and enter data into it. The first way is through a brick which is loaded in down on the back right-hand side of the cockpit. This brick, uh, it's a bit like a big cassette player. Mm -hmm. And on that, we will go into the planning room, we'll store mission data, uh, we will input radio frequencies, waypoints that are applicable to that sortie, and then we place it um, into the aircraft, and the aircraft effectively downloads that information into it, and that will be for that specific mission. So that will be for that specific mission, and you can, you can change all sorts on that, input what weapons you might be carrying, mm -hmm. simulated or real, for tra you know, uh, depending what the mission is. Uh, and load all that in. Should we then need to change anything or enter things while we're flying, such as radio frequencies, swaps, etc., then we do it through this panel on the left-hand glare shield. The way we activate that is if you, um, coming around sort of more to the se centre of the cockpit. Is for example, if I go radio one and select radio one, you see all these switches then light up. I have some menu options here, and what it, it defaults to, because it thinks when I press that, I probably want to enter a frequency. So it automatically de defaults to a manual frequency. So you see man is underlined on that spangle there. Yeah. And then that activates this pad here, and it goes current frequency that's entered is, is that 282.250. And if I wanted to enter just a generic frequency, I'll just type it in and uh, hit enter, and then it will enter it. For example there, the frequency I entered isn't an approved frequency and that the jet knows that that frequency is invalid and will not work yeah. so you saw it flash me there yeah. so you would have to put in something that we actually end up using and then it will accept it yeah. at that point and swap them over um, as you see and we can do that with a number of things so you can see some of the, the items we've got in here radio 1, radio 2, uh, transponder Navigation is obviously entering waypoints, latitudes and longitudes. Um, transmit, exmit, this one here is for anything that transmits off the aircraft or we can, so uh, uh, there's more sort of tactical things in there. And then AIDS is obviously things like your TACAN, ILS, you enter frequencies into that as well. So that's how we enter things into the aircraft while we're flying around so it's quite user-friendly as you can see yep. and, and the aircraft as you saw there that example gave it's looking out for you as well so it will it will know if you're entering something that won't work in it fascinating which so it's always kind of looking after you uh, working around then this sort of sticking out bit here is called the uh, hub on here we have the mids links which is our data link yep data link allows the aircraft to talk to other friendly aircraft, whether that be formation members, AWACS, ground support people, mm -hmm. and receive information as data without us having to trans transmit on, on the radio. Um, one way to think of it is almost like, you, like a text message, and it will come through and you can see it, it will, uh, will give information on there. What this allows us to do is that you 
can receive information from your wingman that he might be looking at a threat or a target that you won't be looking at because you'll be concentrating your uh, you know, lookout on another area but his data and information will automatically be transferred into your cockpit. Yep. It will also be displayed on the map, which is usually shown in the middle uh, center uh, telescreen. Yep. And we can, we can set this up tactically, and you can effectively double, double your workload at that point. You can res be responsible for one area, he can be responsible for another, but yet you've both got the same overall air picture. Yep. You multiply that from a pair to a four ship to an eight ship. You then add in other friendly aircraft, whether they you know, um, be UK-based or overseas, and then put an AWACS as well, an E3D picture, yep. and you can generate a fantastic amount of situational awareness Amazing. of what's going on in the battle space. You also, with, communicate with ground forces as well? Um, I wouldn't know on that. I haven't, I haven't done with it, so I, can, okay. I couldn't say. I'd have to ask someone about that. That's all part of like your head-up display? So, you so it's just under, yeah, underneath that display. It's actually it's this section here. Yep. Um, above that is obviously a head-up display. It's quite a wide... Uh, large head-up display. The um, great thing about that is you can just you know, the bigger it is, the more information you can put on there. Yep, effectively, yep. it's focused on infinity, so it's very natural to look through it. Your eyes, nat you know, are focusing as far yep. away as possible, which is uh, which is handy so you don't get focused in on the writing or yes. anything like that. And that will normally display um, your normal flight data, so your uh, HUD bars will be on there, which has these sort of five, ten degree climb lines. You'll have um, engine uh, settings on their speed, whether it be IAS or ground speed. Um, your AOA indication, because it's flown on uh, angle of attack, so because the, the weight of the jet can vary hugely between the start and the end of a sortie, and depending on what stores it carry, you, we fly angle of attack. Otherwise, you'd have hundreds of speeds to learn through different weights and speed, right. uh, you know things like that so it's all flown in angle of attack we also have navigational information on there so distance to the next waypoint if you have a t time on target entered it will tell you if you're early or late if you're late it will tell you how what speed you need to fly at to get there on time yeah uh, and so it's literally we call it following the green writing it makes it sound very simple. The idea is that the actual flying and operation of the aircraft in terms of navigating it around is very simple. So we can then devote our focus to monitoring the battle space, monitoring what's going on tactically. And the actual flying almost takes a secondary seat to that. It's, it's always in the background, but make it as easy as possible and it frees up as much capacity as you can to go and, go and do other jobs. So would you say that this is closer to working a computer than it is to flying what I fly a, a PA-28. <laughs> it's, um, I mean, a lot of it is systems management with any, with any fast jet, particularly the Typhoon. My experience for this was in the Harrier, which was a very hands-on yep. aircraft and very difficult to fly in certain regimes. The Typhoon has been designed to be easy to fly and operate so that all this computer management can go on in the background. It is, however, very user-friendly and yep. it's been very well designed so that, although there's a lot going on, and it looks, on first impressions, you go, wow, there are buttons everywhere, there are things glowing, yeah, yeah. whirring yeah, yeah, yeah. away, that once you sort of get to grips with it, it's actually very user-friendly. So it just presents good. you with the information you need at the moment. Exactly, yeah. And I mean, you can see that these screens are very simple. If I bring up now, if we move away from the HUD and sort of down towards my right knee, we'll look at the right-hand screen. This 
uh, screen normally shows the radar elevation page, but we also have a, a systems page effectively. So at the moment, we've got the engine page on there. If I select fuel, you can see a very simple fuel diagram. It wow. shows all the fuel uh, tanks on there. And obviously, as if the engines were running, we were flying around, you would see these blue sort of uh, infills would decrease as the yes, fuel is yes. used up. Yep. Um, it shows you very clearly valve positions. So it's very simple and yep. easy to monitor your yep. fuel system. Same with the hydraulics. Very simple system. And these ones are empty at the moment because the engines aren't running. But when we, if we, you know, started the engines now, we would see the temperature would come up. We'd see these fill as the system came online. We'd see valves move. Uh, very, very simple. It's very graphical representation yeah, very of graphical. everything, isn't it? It's fantastic. And if you have an emergency, what, what this helps with as well, we can see it because the engines aren't running at the moment, it's just saying low, low fuel pressure because yep. the engines aren't running to pressurise the system. So it's telling us that there, the, the warnings down there, it's also replicated on this page here and it would show you, it will also box areas of concern. So if there's a problem with the temperature, the temperature will go red on mm -hmm. here. So you can very quickly see, oh that's what's wrong, that's what part of the system's wrong and then work out from there how you're then going to go in and okay and so around each of these screens including this one you're showing me there's a, a series yeah. of buttons sure if you're not on that particular screen where there is a warning do, does it draw your attention to it in some way the warnings are all displayed down here on the uh, just the right of my knee okay on this uh, d uh, dedicated warning panel dwp okay it's called so at the moment it's got uh, several warnings on there just because again the engines aren't running the warning if there was a systems problem would appear on there yep. with the associated caution so okay. in this case we've got one saying L fuel P so low uh, left fuel pressure okay you can see there's also three rows so it will put the warning depending on what side of the aircraft it is okay. so left fuel pressure appears on the left the yep. right fuel pressure appears on the right it'll be the same left engine will appear on the left the, this is a move away from what you see in older military aircraft where the you have effectively a spangle that's lit from behind if yep. there's a warning so the warnings can move around you'll see them in different uh, places but they, they appear there the other way the jet attracts your attention to it it's up here they're not going off the moment but there's um, these two sort of lights here will flash at you just below they're called the attention line. getters and you can there you can push those they're obviously as you said just below the eye line so they they grab your attention if the jet considers it a serious enough warning, yep. it will also issue, uh, issue an audio warning as well through the, uh, it's a sort of, I think it's a 50 year old woman that they modelled it on. They, <laughs> they did a study that apparently male pilots would be most likely to listen to sort of a motherly, <laughs> stern 50 year old woman's voice. Yeah, yeah. So she will, she will politely come on, no matter how serious the situation is, and, and very calmly tell you what the problem is. So she. For example, left fuel P, she would just go, left fuel P, left fuel P, and she'd repeat it until you cancel the warnings. And she will then also run through any subsequent warnings. So certain systems, if they go offline, will have impacts around the aircraft. So you may end up with multiple warnings for one, one main emergency. Right. And she will talk through all of those to make sure you're listening okay. and then that you know what's going on. So it's very good at attracting your attention. You can't sort of ignore it if right. you think you have a problem. Um, so that's warning panel. Uh, just to go back to the the tele screens, as I've been sort of selecting, um, so you see these spangles around the sides. Yeah. They change depending on what is displayed on the screen. So, right. for example, we've got the hydraulic system at the moment. 
and it has uh, on the left hand side you see there are two buttons illuminated if I change it to the engine page there's now only one button illuminated okay if I go to fuel we've now got three so what it does is to allow multiple different menus to be accessed it will um, light different options that are applicable to what's on the screen at any one time so you can see there's those are all fuel specific uh, selections there engine specific hydraulic specific yeah so within this you can see the amount of switches here you have a fantastic way of accessing a huge amount of information without needing to fill the cockpit with 40 different switches yep. and it's a really really great way to do it okay so we have three very well they are exactly the same size screens across the the center of your yeah your panel at the front there yeah uh, one is slightly lower in the middle beneath the hood system uh, the right hand one you just describe is airplane systems systems yeah. management would you call it yeah in fact that you've got uh, access on the on the right hand side to a number of the main systems on the aircraft it also displays waypoint information so if you've loaded a navigation route either through the brick that I spoke about earlier yep. or you've manually entered one while you're in the cockpit that's all displayed there you also have your list of radio frequencies which are the standard ones we use day in day out again you can alter these in the planning room and bring a new set out and load them into the, the aircraft if you wish uh, the other uh, main page we have on here that we display is the radar elevation page it's normally displayed on the, uh, the right hand side um, screen as well okay the center one is the uh, best way to describe it sort of where you, most of your situational awareness um, in terms of where you are uh, comes from because we normally display the map on there yep. um, so that will you can select different scales on the map as well so that whether that be a 1 to 50,000 uh, map for if you're doing some sort of close air support and you want to have a really good look at, at, at where uh, the target may be or you're trying to find the target through a, a talk on from a forward air controller to what we normally fly around in is our uh, UK low flying chart or a uh, we call it the one mil map which displays all the airways around the UK yep. um, that will be on there it's a moving map it has the aircraft position on um, on the screen as you fly around it will move the map around show your exact position using the inbuilt uh, inertial navigation system okay so you know at any any point what exactly where you are um, and the aircraft knows where it is as well which is very good for uh, you know as you're moving motoring along at sort of seven eight miles a minute it's great to have that um, look ahead of yeah I'm exactly here and this is where I'm going and again it comes back to making that navigation nice and easy you can also overlay tactical graphics on there so you can put your route in you can put on um, in the UK, we can put on no disturbance and no TAMs, mm -hmm. um, avoids uh, noise sensitive areas, things like that. If you're on operations, that could be replaced with a surface to air threat, um, a front line of own troops. So you can have all that on there. And the MIDS, coming back to the MIDS data link that I spoke about earlier, that tracks of enemy aircraft or friendly aircraft can also be overlaid on this. So there's a huge amount of information goes through the screen. So it tends to. Um, be the map all the time on there. Some of the options around this screen that you can see, we have things like track or north up for the map. Um, you uh, can put the an HSI overlay on there as well, should you wish. Uh, we uh, and that's it really. That's it's all sort of ma you know, navigational type stuff on that main screen. 
left screen finally which is uh, as you said slightly higher up on the on the left hand side than the uh, center screen at the moment I'm showing the auto queue which uh, is exactly what it says in the tin it has a, a sort of abbreviated checklist at the more uh, at the moment we do have our own checklist and we learn our own checks so we tend not to use the, the checklist shown on there. What it is really great for, however, is you can see right in the middle at the moment it's got no-go warning. Yeah. And that's because the jet at the moment is sensing that there is a problem that would prohibit us starting it and it doesn't want us to, uh, to, to fly off and launch the trip. And that is the canopy pin. Because we're in the hangar, the aircraft seat and canopy have been made safe for right. people to do maintenance. The aircraft through sensors knows that the canopy, the canopy pin is currently in a position that would prohibit the canopy being able to be jettisoned so it tells you that and says look I don't want you to go flying because if you do so you're going to put yourself in a dangerous situation and simple reminders is it, it will update as you go so at the moment the canopy is open so it's displaying that but it's not warning because we're yep. sat on the ground we don't have the engines running yep. if I went into takeoff mode which uh, which happened just before I go, go to, to launch the canopy is still open at that point it goes hang on a minute you want to take off but you still got your canopy open so that would become red and there would be a no-go would appear because the canopy is open so it's, it's just looking after you and then it has a list of sort of systems that aren't online yet at the bottom here we use that on the ground once we get airborne however we go into the attack format which is the radar um, azimuth so looking ahead of the aircraft on the on the radar page so that happens automatically on selecting the gear up as well so we don't have to physically select those pages the aircraft knows what phase of flight is so if I select the wheels up it goes he's just got airborne I'll put the radar pages on get the map ready when I put the wheels down it will then go he wants to land now it will put the engine page on the right hand side because it thinks I'm concerned about what my engine's doing yep. so automatically you know the point I'm trying to get across I think in all of this is it, it's constantly trying to help you out yep. and and make your workload as, as light as possible. You have multiple backup systems on here, I presume? Most, uh, with any aircraft, as you know from your, your flying, you've, you've always got some redundancy built in, particularly on critical systems. Um, so fuel, uh, there are certain valves we can open, We can uh, the pilot can access tank interconnects, for example, so if there's a problem with fuel feeding from one area to another, we can try and manually get around that. The uh, hydraulics, for example, we can also shut or open some of the valves to isolate leaks if needs be. Um, hydraulics, however, if we lose both hydraulic system, that's a, a fairly terminal barrier. But you know, the whole jet's built around redundancy. We're yep. fortunate we've got two engines which are very reliable. You've got backup to the undercarriage, and at the end of the day, if it all went completely wrong as long as you can get your wheels down you've got at least one engine running and you've got some fuel to run with, run it with that's enough to get you home yep. and, and those are the key systems other systems they, uh, some of the more software based systems again they have built in uh, tests they're constantly assessing their serviceability as we're flying around they do that automatically if they then have a problem they'll tell me about it and I'll try and work around it in the pocket if I can't then I may have to accept you know that um, I'm not going to have that system, but uh, generally it's pretty reliable, and, okay. and you can sort of get on with it. And then we have uh, the sensor stick. Sensor stick, so um, uh, fly by wire, so it's not connected to anything. Yep. It, uh, apart from a load of wires, so I have yep. no um, connection directly through control rods or anything like that. The jet runs on four flight control computers, 
and they have something like I think it's one in a billion failure rate each of those and it, the jet requires two to fly so you could have two computers fail so it's huge odds that you would ever lose control of this aircraft it's inherently unstable so the computers have to be there to keep this thing flying I, I don't have no human has the ability to, to keep it flying without the computers you couldn't, you couldn't physically fly this without computers the way, the way it's designed and no, you can, the computers are there to help you out the great thing about this jet is carefree handling so in older aircraft where you have to observe speed limits G limits depending what stores you're carrying if you've got fuel in external fuel tanks for example um, you, you manually would have to look after those limits and learn them and I from my days in the Harrier sat there going you know for an afternoon with my course mates trying to learn all these different speeds and G regulations the Typhoon automatically looks after all of that so it knows the position of the fuel in the aircraft it knows what stores you have on it if you drop a store or fire a missile it then knows that that missile is gone and yep. it will readjust everything and automatically look after it it will also give you depending on what inputs you put in and how aggressively you put those in it will give you the maximum performance it can based on the current flight speed yep. height etc so if i want to go hard over to the right if i roll quite aggressively and go full backstick the jet if it's got enough speed on it will give me full aircraft limits it will roll as fast as it can and it will then apply up to 9g depending how fast it, fast it is it's completely carefree handling as it is inherently unstable as well the aircraft has a built-in protection system and so we actually departed this aircraft and controlled flight or stalled it and with the potential of departing it it may become irrecoverable because it is so unstable so the aircraft will manage that by uh, if you're approaching a very say um, slow speed uh, you put it into a very uh, high climb and you put the throttles idle mm -hmm. and the, the speed was washing back it would assess that you know if we keep doing this we're just going to run out of airspeed and I, I'm going to depart so what it will do it will give a warning it will go speed low recover speed low recover if you don't take any action at that point for whatever reason um, most pilots at that point would instigate recovery but if you don't or the rate of change is assessed as too great for you to deal with the jet will then go FCS override and it will take control yep. at that point you will lose control of the of the aircraft and it will fly the jet into a sort of an eye pleasing manner where it goes I think we're okay now mm -hmm. and it will then give you control back so you cannot physically depart this aircraft from control flight it will also have it has automa uh, automatic low speed recovery so if you try and land with the wheels up it will put power on and fly yep. you away from the ground so the, that's all built into that carefree handling and it comes back to making it as easy as possible to fly it has automatic trimming there are no trimmers in this aircraft it automatically trims itself so you can hold, put the stick level, put the uh, velocity vector on the horizon and go full reheat. And as the aircraft accelerates, it will automatically trim itself to maintain level. Whereas in legacy aircraft, it would obviously, as yep. you know, pitch up and, uh, um, as it accelerated. So you have to use the center stick with your right hand because you've got your left hand on the throttle? Yep, so left, um, coming up, you know, to the switch, as I mentioned, right at the start on the, on the throttle, you've got those on the on the control column as well you've also got digital voice input being able to tell the aircraft certain functions and commands so most of the time you would be flying around with your hands you'd always have one hand on the stick mm -hmm. definitely and then your left hand on the on the throttles if I then needed to select something on one of these uh, telescreens or manually enter something I would use my left hand so I would set the throttles where I need them for the speed 
continue to fly the aircraft with my right hand and then use my left hand to manually enter any of the, uh, any of the things I may need. Um, and it's got a handy little rest there, they even thought Very, of that. Think of everything, so don't they? So they have thought of everything. Finally, down the, on the right-hand side here, there's, um, it's back really to what we had on the left-hand console, so down by my right thigh and extending to the back of the cockpit, you have um, sort of more admi uh, administrative type uh, buttons such as lights, air conditioning, um, fuel probe, uh, and then electrical switches right at the back, which again all get turned yep. on and left. So that, that's kind of a, a quick sort of once around the cockpit, really. Okay. Compared with uh, the previous aircraft you've flown, how does it compare comfort-wise and room? And it's it's actually quite a spacious cockpit. Yeah. From uh, comparing it certainly to the Hot T1 and the Harrier, there's um, it's quite well laid out. It's very user-friendly, very ergonomic. The seat itself is slightly reclined, which is partly to do with uh, G protection. It's actually at slight angles. You can see if I sort of lean back in it. Yep. Um, so it's actually it's quite comfortable to fly around in. Um, visibility is incredible, I would say. The visibility is fantastic. Huge canopy, great, yep. great visibility all around. You've just got the four planes really in your field of vision down to left and right. Absolutely, but a quick half a second roll one way or the other, and and uh, and you and you can get past that anyway. Just as you have two two uh, wings either side of you that you know get in the way, so. Uh, it, it's not a big problem at all. It's it's fantastic uh, visibility all all around. Really, are you familiar with the startup routine on this? And the startup routine. So as we chatted about earlier, just um, on the uh, right hand uh, side here, just so sort of in line with my right hip, you see APU. Yep. So I would select start on the APU. Yep. It'll take um, about forty-five seconds to a minute. The APU will then wind up at that point. It will. It will come on and that spangle there, say the eight, it will come up with APU. APU is running, and at that point, I would just select left engine to idle, and the start sequence is entirely automatic at that point. Uh, once the left hand engine has powered up, I would then select right hand engine uh, to idle and go from there. The jet's clever enough, if I push both to idle at the same time, it will start one, then the other, so that it's completely fail safe, uh, automated start. Brilliant. Have we missed anything? Uh, no, I think we've been through most things. Do you want uh, the ejection seat, really? I don't know if you want yeah. to touch on that while yeah. we're here, I suppose. So it's uh, a Martin Baker seat. Um, we have uh, to arm it, you see down by my right knee, it currently says safe. There's a, a lever there that I lift up and, uh, and move, and then that will say live to arm that just before takeoff. The seat has uh, three sort of main modes effects. So it will assess your height and speed at ejection, and that will adjust the parachute deployment based on that. The reason being that obviously at low level at 500 knots, if you eject at something like 250 feet, it knows that you're going to be on the ground very quickly, so it will fire the parachute as quick as it can. You eject at 45,000 feet, it doesn't want you hanging in a parachute for sort of 10, 15 minutes until you get down. So it will just deploy the drogue, just send you to 10,000-ish feet, yep. and then deploy your parachute. It's something around 1.2 to 1.8 seconds, from, depending on what mode it's using, from pulling the handle to being suspended under a parachute, fully deployed parachute, with the seat separated. Your survival pack lowers about 20 feet below you on a uh, on a, a sort of big piece of rope. So once you've armed it, that's that big loop 
black and uh, black and yellow black and yellow sat yeah sat uh, between my legs that's that's no missing your, uh, it, is it? <laughs> there's there's no missing it and um you know thankfully touch wood i've never i've never had to to even consider using an injection seat but um obviously you you know people do occasionally yeah. um and uh, as long as you do your ejection seats correctly you know checks correctly beforehand i think they have a hundred percent success rate so What's the routine when you eject? Do you sort of like bring in your legs in, or ideally, if you if you know you have to eject, you'll you'll slow the aircraft down um, so that you don't get such a, a huge blast of air as you actually escape out of a sort of protected cockpit. So you'll try and slow the aircraft down, put it nice and straight and level, put an emergency mm-hmm. uh, call a mayday, broadcast your position, and give people as much information that you're going to be abandoning the aircraft. If you didn't have the time, you, you'd obviously you, you just pull the handle, and then we have our own uh, a location beacon that goes out with us anyway. So you would use that. Once you've set the aircraft up, we adopt what we call the ejection seat posture. So you uh, keep your feet on the rudder pedals. You make sure that your back is straight. You push your bum all the way back in against the seat, and ensure your thighs are flat on the seat as well, so that this, there's no gap there. So when the ejection seat comes up, it doesn't crack you on the back of the leg and yep. sort of break your femurs um, as you go out. Set up nice and tall, close your eyes and then you bring both your arms in into sort of your groin area and hold one uh, one hand with the other and then pull the handle um, and then uh, off you go. Right to pray. Yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> ride the roller coaster. Uh, out you go. What happens then is uh, gases uh, are activated it's a rocket pack under the seat so the start to fire the seat will move up the rail the canopy uh, uh, will, will go you'll you move up the ejection seat rail um, as you do that my I have arm restraint lines in my flying kit so they if I haven't had the chance to adopt this nice position they will automatically pull my hands in into my body to make sure that I don't sustain flail injuries where I end up with an arm sort of way out yep. uh, on the side and, uh, and, and cause an injury that way the built into the cockpit here you can just make out around my uh, my left and right shins there's a, a, a um, sort of restraint line here as I go out the seat will pull on those and they will catch onto my shins and they will pull my legs in like this so as I go up and out of the cockpit it brings my legs in and takes my feet away from the from the consoles and the head-up display and most importantly the canopy arch yep. and pulls my whole body in you fire out the next second or so is all automated you end up in a parachute at that point the seat separates and underneath what I'm actually sat on in the cockpit is a survival pack so there's a survival pack underneath me which contains a fire lighting kit um, flares to attract attention um, an axe things like that to enable me to survive for long enough until a uh, search and rescue helicopter can come and find me I've also got a dinghy in there as well importantly so should I land in water, that will automatically inflate, and now I can climb in my dinghy, uh, get rid of all the excess water, and then sit there, bob around in the North Sea, and, and wait for <laughs> someone to come and rescue me. Superb. So it's a it's a great system, and um, touch wood, no one has ejected from an RAF typing yet. Um, and uh, what we always know we've got a great system uh, from Martin Baker there, should we need it. That's uh, brilliant. And, and that's pretty much it. That's that's Thanks the for, typing uh, cockpit. Thanks for giving me a look round. Superb. After the cockpit briefing by Gregor, uh, we're back with Gregor now and Liam uh, for a walk round under the aircraft exterior. We start with Gregor under the nose of the aircraft. Front end of the jet then, so the radar sits in the nose 
of the uh, aircraft and then there's various avionics systems that sit behind that. The uh, point Liam just wants me to chat about kind of carries on from the flying control system. I spoke about the four computers yep. that, that provide the carefree handling. You, these four sort of blade-like um, bits of metal on the front are called ADTs, air data transducers. Each of these feeds into one of those computers. Um, these like pitots? They're the effectively pitots. So you can see on the bottom here that they sort of a pitot. There's little static vents all along ah, them. Yes. And they also, because they rotate round, will give indications on uh, angle of attack, yeah. wind direction, yeah. etc. So they're like four and little weather vanes, aren't they? Effectively, yeah. Around in the wind. Exactly like that. And they, they feed directly into to each of those computers. Um, so again... You know, you lose a couple of these, potentially lose a couple of the, the, com the computers, but the jet will keep flying. Um, the four plane stuff, so carefree handling again, so they automatically are moving all the time during flight. Um, and they, you know, it doesn't often make sense the way they move to the way you think they would move. Mm -hmm. And that's comes back to the jet, will do what it needs to and assess what's going on, where it is, how fast it is, how high it is and then move the control surfaces to, to do its, uh, its bits and pieces with do that. the four planes act as air brakes as well when you land? They Yes, so um, when the weight on wheels is engaged and the jet's on the ground, the four planes swing into this position that you see them in now and they give some sort of aerodynamic braking. The brakes on this aircraft are very good though, um, but that helps as well. And then uh, once the jets slow down sufficiently, the four planes will then fold back into a horizontal position which is when they're ready for flight. You see them now, obviously, as I said, raised. Um, when the aircraft started up, when you engage the flying control system, so once all the systems are fired up, and you want to engage the flying control computers and say we're, we're ready to go, it's a button down on the left-hand side. When you select that, you just make sure the engineers are clear, and then the, these four planes will move into the horizontal positions, uh, ready for flight. And they're made of titanium. So very, you obviously see the... The, uh, it's quite a big uh, fixing on the, on either side of the nose to hold them on because they're yes. subjected obviously to huge yeah. amounts of G and aerodynamic forces. Yep. So they're uh, they're pretty solid. The aircraft itself is quite light, isn't it? It's yeah. I mean, considering what it can carry, it's yeah. It's it's, it's not uh, it's not horrendously heavy. Um, Mostly made of composite. Yes, composite material. Fire. So a, a number of material. I could give you the exact breakdown back in the office but uh, yeah composite material to try and reduce weight as much as possible and the advantage of that and, and how that's transpired onto the aircraft is you've now got 40,000 pounds of thrust being generated by the engines but very light aircraft so you get this greater than one-to-one -one thrust ratio so the jet mm -hmm. you know it will it will shift if, and, it, and it and it goes and goes and goes so um, it's, it's important but then you've got other sections of the jet like the uh, the four planes where they need to you know, to be very strong, that's where you get things like titanium coming into it. The engines, I mean, there's, there's not too much to actually see in, in the front, just underneath the engine intakes themselves, so right on the front of them, you've got these two sort of droopy bits, which are called the... Like reverse uh, flaps almost. Like yeah, they're uh, intake cowls. Okay. So at low speed, these will um, these will sort of hang open because the jet needs to get the, the air into the engine. Obviously, as it accelerates and gets faster, there's more and more air coming into the engine. So mm -hmm. to manage that, when it gets to the point that there's almost too much coming in, these will automatically raise and uh, and lower, depending on your speed, to control the amount of airflow going into the engine uh, and, and keeping that ratio correct so that you, uh, you don't end up surging it or something at, uh, at a high level. That, again, all automated. There's 
you, there is a, an emergency backup switch should I need to take control of them in, in certain circumstances, but normally that's all automated and you, you, uh, you just let them get on and do their thing. Um, moving down, this jet is currently uh, fitted up for frontline training, so the OCU typically fly around with one centerline tank. Um, that's 29 squadron. The frontline squadrons fly with two underwing tanks just because they tend to do more um, lengthier sorties. The OCU, most of the aims can be achieved within about an hour to an hour and a half. So internal fuel plus an external fuel tank is usually enough. Um, so this is an 11 squadron front, frontline jet. So we've got two fuel tanks um, sat on uh, on each, uh, so one on each wing. And the aircraft can be fitted up for 13 hard points in total. So you can see we've got... Uh, three on uh, the wings here you've got another one which is kind of covered at the moment because it's not being used so we, we can yep. to reduce uh, drag on the aircraft we can we can cover them up if we're not using them and then on the side of the fuselage you have uh, you can just see these sort of grooves yeah missiles can sit in there so you have two of those on each side um, you also have the center line attachment which we have you can see on that aircraft over there that's an OCU aircraft so the fuel tank just sits in, in between the landing gear doors there when they're lowered and then the final thing is the uh, the cannon which sits in uh, on the right hand fuselage just uh, the front of the cannon comes out just at the leading edge it's just the one cannon just the one cannon yep okay Liam might be able to, to pop it open actually Liam you pop open the, the cannon Ooh. Just fire it off for us. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Just a couple of rounds will do. Wow. So you can see it runs from sort of the back of it there and then the barrel comes all the way through and then up up through here in the aircraft and then the uh, rounds shatters. come out of there and that, that part shatters there and you start firing. That's what, 20 odd millimetre cannons? It's 27 millimetre. Others, what else have we got fitted on this jet today is the RAIDS pod. So RAIDS is um, used for debriefing and this effect, what this does is uh, in here it has uh, various sensors, we can fit these to, to the aircraft and they store data about what's going on during the flight and you can use these for debriefing and they will log shot kills where the jets are positioned, heights, speeds and things like that and we can download these cards when we come back onto the squadron and you can then play, replay your flight effectively yep. and it will show you where all the different aircraft are when certain people maybe took a missile shot, what height and speed they were at when they did that and we can then validate if that would have been a, a good, good shot and that would have been a kill or not. Um, and that usually leads to all sorts of, you know, th this actually, this sorts out all the arguments of, you know, <laughs> I was better than off, you yeah. and I shot you and things yeah, like yeah. that. This is the kind of, the way we get around it is you, you run this and then that, and it, and it sort of gets, gets around that. Where do you actually do your weapons training around here? The majority of the sorties are done in danger areas over the North Sea, yep. which are only about sort of a few minutes flying time from here. So uh, there's some large danger areas over there. We need quite a large area to train in actually. Um, so we'll, we'll do most of it over there. There are also ranges further up the east coast, but they're normally looked uh, after and used by the Lucas jets, so by Six Squadron. Right. So they'll normally work up there. We'll work uh, in the ones off, off East Anglia and the kind of northeast English coast. And we'll also do 
if we're doing uh, affiliation training with other RAF aircraft, for example, we'll do those in uh, designated training areas um, around the UK, whether it be in Wales, Northumberland, in Scotland. Uh, we also use Spade Adam and RF Spade Adam for uh, training against surface-to-air threats. And that's a, a danger area in there that we would use quite frequently. But um, given the, the heights we can climb to and the speeds we can fly at, you can, you can comfortably get to most parts of the UK on internal fuel. And, and quite happily in twen 20 minutes from here, you, could, you could sort of be in Scotland <laughs> or Wales quite comfortably. So yeah. um, we, can, we tend to base it on where the weather's good. What is this thing on the wingtip? This looks interesting. It's got caution refrigerant written on it and radio frequency decoy dispensers. Basically, uh, that fires out a, like a decoy. So, if, if for instance, someone had a lock on, yep. that would have a radio frequency which would divert the missile onto that. Right. So all it is is firing out decoys. Right. Comes that was out like those flares that you see popping out. No, no, it's like uh, basically this would be a, a, like a long uh, piece of cable okay. with a de decoy on the back of it. Yeah. So, there's two of them fitted there. The, uh, the chaff and flare system that you're talking about, chaff system, built, it's built into the actual uh, launcher. So, again, this will fire out the uh, chaff if someone's got a lock on. Basically, fine iron, uh, fine filing, uh, metal filings, basically. Yeah. And then the uh, flare system, just under here. Just behind the uh, right undercarriage. Yep. Excellent. We should have bought an engine guy with us, but we haven't. <laughs> We've so got uh, the directionable nozzles that sort of. Uh yeah, so you've got divergent nozzles um, on the back of the end, on back of both of the engines. So you commonly see those uh, when the jet's displaying and or doing a, a full reheat takeoff. You'll see those kind of open up and just expand um, as, the, as the reheat engages. Um, the, there's not much to sort of look at, unfortunately, with the engines because all the important bits are in the, in the fuselage itself. But yep. I mean, it's forty thousand pounds of thrust, so twenty thousand pounds each in full reheat, um, which gives it a greater than one to one thrust ratio. That translates in, in terms of performance into I think Liam, who's, who's flown in the back seat, described it as the best roller coaster trip he'd ever had. Um, the the, you know, any pilot who's flown this will raves about the, the amount of performance. It will accelerate from about 200 knots to the speed of sand in approximately 30 seconds at low level. It will climb supersonically to about 40,000 feet in around two minutes. So that's higher than your your normal airliner will fly at yeah. and you think it probably takes them about 10-15 minutes to get to that sort of height. We can be up there in a couple of minutes so we'll take it all the way up, up to there and it's complete carefree handling as a control unit for each of the engines so I, I can't surge the engine through mishandling the throttle um, which it doesn't really and I think on any of the RS frontline jets now but on certainly some of the older ones like the Hawk T1 you have to be cautious with your engine mm -hmm. handling at high level in the Typhoon it, it looks after it entirely so you can uh, you can slam the throttle back and forth if you, if you wanted to yes. not that you would be but you could and it would completely look after it it wouldn't allow the engine to surge and it has an automatic uh, relight facility built in as well so if it senses the engine is winding down it will then relight it automatically and look after it. So it's as well as a carefree handling system. We have carefree engine handling as well. <laughs> Just like a Volkswagen. Isn't it? <laughs> well, yeah, <laughs> with, a, with a bit more oomph, <laughs> I think. Um, it'll fly at Mach two. Is that right? 
Yep, um, Mac Two is uh, it's uh, published sort of top speed. Um, typically, we won't go quite that fast, but frequently uh, we'll break the sand barrier, and it's a very um, aerodynamically efficient aircraft. Yep. So if you look at uh, the front of, say, a Tornado or a Harrier when it was in service, they were uh, quite sort of dirty aerodynamically. Mm-hmm. The Typhoon's very sleek, very uh, very agile and very clean, and it allows it to sort of maintain that speed quite happily. We've super got the, cruise, is it called? It's, yeah, so at high altitudes, yes, it will super cruise, which is the, the ability to fly at the greater than the speed of sound without the use of reheat. The so reheat uses a lot more fuel, so that's a super, you know, super cruising is a fuel efficient way of getting around yeah. quickly. I believe um, you, you have a problem getting down without going through the sound barrier, is that correct? That is correct, yes. So because it is so aer- aerodynamic, um, that if you just put the nose down, even at idle, it will continue to accelerate. So the, we have a couple of ways, really, if we're trying to descend from high level, or three ways, really, if we're descending from high level. One is you, you do it early and you just do a very gentle descent. Um, and so you don't end up having to put the nose down too too far if for air traffic reasons so you, you can't get descent because there may be other aircraft around and you have to descend later on you can either do a sort of split S manoeuvre where you um, go to idle, you'll roll inverted and then you will you'll do sort of half a loop and that will lose you four or five thousand feet and you and you will just keep doing that and you use the G that you can put on the aircraft to, to control the speed by l- loading it up uh, and the final way, uh, which um, is alien to most pilots, because it involves putting in full pro spin controls. And as we said, when we're in the cockpit, the jet physically won't you allow, allow you to depart it. So when you put full pro spin controls in, so stick sort of back and into one of the corners, and then full rudder in, the jet just enters a very graceful, tight spiral, at about 70 or 80 degrees nose down, and it will do that at quite low speed and you will lose you know, several thousand feet very quickly and that will literally bring you straight down so if you uh, that com- might be used for example if we've come from Wales and we've gone high level mm-hmm. to get above all the uh, civilian air traffic across the centre of the country we'll pop out of the airways um, not too far from Coningsby and we'll ask for an unrestricted descent uh, from air traffic control and we'll use that manoeuvre and we'll just spiral down over the top of the airfield and it's all done at idle power so it's nice and fuel efficient saving us fuel which by that point of the sortie is usually uh, one of our key aims is, yeah. is getting back with enough fuel because some fuel yeah, yeah. <laughs> well what a cracking day i had uh, over at uh, RAF Coningsby with uh, liam and gregor thanks very much to to them for uh, taking the time to give me a look around the uh, eurofighter typhoon uh, if you'd like more information about the typhoon display team uh, you can have a look at their uh, website and you can find uh, details of the team's website on the Flying Podcast website. Well, that's it for episode 47 of Flying Podcast. As usual, if you have any comments, suggestions for future episodes, or if you'd like to take part, you can email me on steve at flyingpodcast.co.uk. Thanks for listening. I'll speak to you again soon.